One of the benefits of subscribing to Founders is not only the new podcasts that I make every week, but being able to go back and listen to the entire back catalog. Uh, this preview is an example of that. I published this podcast last year, and I believe your life will be better if you learn from Charlie Munger than if you didn't. Um, his ideas have influenced a generation of entrepreneurs, investors, really just anybody that wants to do their best work. Um, it's really interesting. You start reading and hearing, uh, reading the writings of Warren Buffett and hearing him speak, and he credits Munger. Uh, with Munger's thinking specifically, for pushing Berkshire Hathaway into focusing on wonderful businesses as opposed to just ones that are undervalued. And he says that that allowed Berkshire to go to the next level. Uh, There's actually a quote. He said that my decisions have been better. I've lived a better life because of Charlie. And I think Charlie will have the same effect on you. Um, Now you're hearing this, this whole preamble, because you're on the public free feed. This feed that you're on right now only has partial episodes. Founders is an ad-free private podcast, so you need to upgrade to hear the full episodes. And you can do that very easily. All you have to do is tap the link that's in the show notes on your podcast player. It takes less than 30 seconds to set up, and you can listen and you listen to Founders in your favorite podcast player, just like any other podcast. Um, and you also get seven days to try it for free if you use the link that's in the show notes. Uh, I want to leave you with a quote from Charlie. He's, he's one of the most, I have, I don't know, hundreds of quotes of his saved a lot of which I'll share on this podcast today. But I want to leave you a quote uh, that Charlie said that highlights the value in learning. I mean, what is Founders all about? Making an easier, faster way for you to learn from the life stories of some of the greatest people in history, right? So he always highlights the value in learning from biographies of great people that have come before us. And he says, I'm a biography nut myself. That's that's, a not an under, that's not an overstatement, by the way. He's read hundreds of biographies. So he says, I'm a biography not myself. And I think when you're trying to teach the great concepts at work, it helps to tie them into the lives and personalities of the people who developed them. That sounds funny, making friends among the eminent dead. But if you go through life making friends with the eminent dead who had the right ideas, I think it will work better for you in life and work. And work better in education is a, it's way better than just giving the basic concepts. That's the end of his quote. And I think that's what a subscription to Founders does. It helps you learn from and be friends with the eminent dead and a few people who are still alive. So get seven days free now by tapping the link that's in your show notes on your podcast player. And I hope to see you on the Misfit feed. In the chronicles of American financial history, Charlie Munger will be seen as the proverbial enigma wrapped in a paradox. He is both a mystery and a contradiction at the same time. Warren Buffett said, Charlie's most important architectural feat was the design of today's Berkshire. The blueprint he gave me was simple. Forget what you know about buying fair businesses at wonderful prices. Instead, buy wonderful businesses at fair prices. Consequently, Berkshire has been built to Charlie's blueprint. How is it that Charlie, who trained as a meteorologist and a lawyer and never took a single college course in economics, marketing, finance, or accounting became one of the greatest business and investing geniuses of the 20th and 21st centuries. Therein lies the mystery. Okay, so that's from the introduction of the book that I'm going to talk to you about today, the one I read this week, which is The Tao of Charlie Munger, a compilation of quotes from Berkshire Hathaway's vice chairman on life, business, and the pursuit of wealth. So I wasn't expecting to do this book this week, but um, I saw this random tweet. And let me just read this tweet to you. And it says, uh, The Tao of Charlie Munger by David Clark is easily the most impactful book I've read over the past five years. 
I've read it probably 20 times just to drill all of Munger's lessons into my head better than any MBA. So anytime I see a tweet like that with such a, like a high recommendation, um, I've talked about this before. I think it's foolish to like, I think you should economize and be frugal about uh, with most of your resources and most things in life. But I don't think books is one of the things you should economize on or anything that teaches you something. I think it's silly. I think that's what you should be. Like that's a purpose of money. That's what you should be spending your money on. So I immediately, once I saw the tweet, I immediately downloaded the Kindle version um, and read the, like the Kindle sample, couldn't put it down, immediately bought the book. And normally I like to read, you know, paperback books or physical books, but I didn't want to wait. So I just, I downloaded the entire book and just couldn't stop reading. And uh, before I jump into the book, I just want to talk about like the, I, I especially like if, if you're new to like the world of Charlie Munger. Now there's two other books that I'm going to be doing in, on future episodes of Founders about Charlie. Uh, one of them being Poor Charlie's Almanac, which is huge. But this is a really good introduction because what David, let's see, his name is David Clark, the author. What he did is he took, um, the book is not like a normal like chapter book. It's, a, it's like 130 or 140, like I would say one to two page essays. And so he takes a quote or an observation that he, he found of Charlie Munger and then kind of expounds on it in a few short paragraphs. So um, it's the kind of book where you could read it in like a weekend, but I would, I would recommend, and I bought the, I'm, I'm waiting for the paperback version to, um, to arrive, um, just keeping it around your house and, and like in, in, in a place where like you see it all the time, pick it up, read one or two essays, put it kind of down. Um, and that's the way I would consume it after you read it. Cause I think it is very much like what the person that's treating this is who read it 20 times. Like it's a, is very much like a, like a, an easy digestible, like reference to the mind of Charlie Munger. Now, why you, you might be asking other than the fact that, you know, he's Warren Buffett's right hand man. And, um, like they just said, never really took a class on economics or any kind of business yet uh, has had, has already had one of the most successful careers in, in business history. Um, and the reason I was introduced to Charlie is because he is, there's a lot of people that I respect the way they think. And so I try, I try to follow like what they read, what they write, if they're on podcasts, et cetera, like that. And what I notice a pattern is a lot of the people that I already respect, respect, uh, Charlie Munger. And I think that's a good way. I've always talked about this idea that I was exposed to a few years ago, that books are the original hyperlinks. They link us from one person or one idea to another. Well, same thing with people. Where if there's somebody you really admire the way they think, you always go back and look who influenced them because we're we're a very uh, we're a species that that mimics, right? So inevitably, the people that you admire were heavily influenced by other people, and um, this podcast is kind of an example of that because I started out being interested, you know, in people that uh, entrepreneurs like the, the basic people that a lot of people look up to now. Let's say like the Steve Jobs and the Jeff Bezos and the Elon Musks, but then the more you study them. And you read their biographies, you, you watch videos of them talking, you realize like they always reference who influenced them. So think about this, like Steve Jobs, he was influenced by Robert Noyce, one of the founders of Intel. Robert Noyce was uh, in turn uh, influenced by people like Bill Hewlett and David Packard, uh, founders of HP, uh, who also influenced Steve Jobs. Then uh, I always talk about, um, you know, if you really want to understand Steve Jobs, you should really study the life of Edwin Land, who is, I think, one of the most... Uh, how would I say not underrated like he had a huge impact in the world and yet not that many people know about him so whatever term you want to whatever term describes that where you know I when I discuss Edwin Land I said hey you really should read his book or read the book his bi the biography on him called insisting on the impossible and you realize a lot of the ideas that we quote Steve Jobs he's just quoting Edwin Land 
Um, and this happens all the time. So uh, Jeff Bezos, who is he influenced by? Well, read, his, read the Everything Story. Talks about Sam Walton. Talks about a life-changing meeting with the founder of Costco. Uh, James Sinegal, I think is how you pronounce his name. Um, same thing with Elon Musk. He talks openly about being influenced by people like Benjamin Franklin and Henry Ford. So I, I, this is a long-winded way to say there's something, um, there's a lot of value to studying Charlie Munger. At least I found a lot of value in that because by and large, almost every single person I look up to or um, that I enjoy the way they look at the world um, references the influence he's had. So we're going to see a lot of that um, today in, in, um, in this book. So it's, uh, this is not like a typical biography, but we are going to hear a little bit about, like the introduction covers a little bit about his early life. Um, so let me just jump into that right now. And it says, um, Charlie spent much of his youth, he's 95 years old now, okay? So he says, Charlie spent much of his youth reading the television and video games of his day. So that's what they're describing, reading. Uh, reading is a heavy, heavy theme in this book. Um, uh, well, I'll just get, uh, I won't step on my future points. Um, and that is where he discovered a larger world. So Charlie and Warren both grew up in Omaha, and this is a little bit about his first job and, and an indirect way that he's going to wind up meeting um, Warren Buffett. So it says, uh, Charlie was introduced to the world of business at the Buffett grocery store. So this is a grocery store that Warren Buffett's grandfather owned. He said he learned about, and this is really uh, important, he said he learned about taking inventory, stocking shelves, pleasing customers, the importance of showing up on time for work, and how to get along with others while accomplishing a joint task. And of course, running the cash register, where money, the lifeblood of business flowed. The people that are already on my email list um, will already know this because I just took notes on it's like a 30-minute talk uh, Charlie Munger gave in 2005. He was given a commencement address. I think it was at the University of Southern California School of Law. And so he references history constantly. He's very much a student of history. And so the author, David Clark, is picking on, uh, up on that here in the introduction. He says, Charlie often brings up the horrors at, of the Great Depression at Berkshire Hathaway annual meetings as a reminder of just how bad things can get. And uh, that's one thing you're going to notice about Charlie has like a very, almost like a stoic philosophy on understanding that, hey, most of what happens to us in life, we can't control, but we can control how like we react to it. And he references like how studying history will put things into your perspective. Like you may be suffering, but people have suffered way worse than you and they've survived through it. So that when I read that part about constantly reminding yourself about the Great Depression and how things can get, there's a book that I read um, so it says, for, well, first let me read the note I left myself. It says, there's a value in studying these time periods. I'd recommend reading The Last Highlander. It teaches you uh, what humans are able to adapt and overcome. And the audiobook is like a long podcast. And so then I went back and, and looked for my notes on that book. And I'm just going to read them to you. Let me pull it up right now. Okay, it says, uh, so these are the notes I wrote. It says, I just finished The Forgotten Highlander, my incredible story of survival during the war in the Far East by Alistair Urquhart. So uh, I was uh, posting something I said highly recommend, but let me just uh, tell you the basic plot here, and I'm just going to read my notes directly to you, okay? This is really important. Um, so the guy uh, that wrote the book is, uh, it's just like self, first, uh, first-hand account. So uh, it says, Alistair Urquhart was conscripted into the British military to fight during World War II. He was 19 years old. He was sent to Singapore. The Japanese invaded, and he was taken hostage. He survived 750 days in the jungle working as a slave on the death railway and the bridge on the River Kwai. 
most of the time he was forced to work completely naked. So imagine being, you're a slave of the Japanese Imperial Army, uh, you're, you're butt naked, and you're in the jungle. What do you think is going to happen? He contracted dysentery, malaria, and tropical ulcers a lot. If you want to gross yourself out, Google what a tropical ulcer looks like. He was then transferred after 750 days as a slave. He was transferred to what's called a Japanese hell ship. Um, the ship was torpedoed by the Allies. Almost everyone on the ship died. He did not. He spent five days adrift at sea until he was picked up by a Japanese whaling ship. It gets <laughs> as bad as his life has been so far, right? It's, it's about to get worse. He was sent to Nagasaki um, and forced to work in a mine. Two months later, he was struck by the blast from the atomic bomb. He was freed by the U.S. Navy shortly thereafter. He returns home to Scotland and finds out his best friend died in the war and the girl he loved got married and moved to Canada. At 90 years of age, he wrote the book, The Last Highlander, to inspire others to persevere when they are faced with hardships in their life. I think it's a great book for entrepreneurs. The story demonstrates the adaptability of humans, our fierce desire to survive, and puts the stress of building companies into the proper perspective. The entire story only takes three hours and 14 minutes. So if you happen to subscribe uh, to Audible like I do, um, I definitely recommend um, using one of your credits on that because I think it's, it's fantastic. Okay, so um, let's go back to more of uh, his early adulthood. So it says, after high school, 17-year-old Charlie enrolled in the University of Michigan to study mathematics. He turned 19 a year after Pearl Harbor, dropped out of college, and joined the U.S. Army Air Corps. The Army sent him to Caltech in Pasadena, California to study meteorology. There he learned the difference between uh, cumulus and cirrus clouds and fell in love with the sunny Southern California weather. While the teenage Warren Buffett was busy learning about odds and probability at the, racing, at the horse racing track, um, Charlie Munger was learning important investment skill while playing poker with his army buddies. That's where he learned to fold his hand when the odds were against him and to bet heavy when the odds were with him. So betting heavy when you know, when you have an opportunity, he talks about constantly, a strategy he later developed uh, to investing. Or he, excuse me, he later adapted uh, to, to investing. Uh, so he ends up going to law school. Um, then he joins a prestigious corporate law firm. He doesn't last long as an attorney. Um, and then he also becomes a director of an international harvester dealership, which I think just sells like farm equipment. But he talks about uh, some of the lessons he learned from the dealership. It's a, he, it was a volume business that required a lot of capital to pay its costly inventory. Most of his finance with bank loans is a lot of stuff. So after a couple of uh, bad seasons, carrying costs and inventory starts to destroy the business. So he learns like what's a bad business, which I think is very valuable, um, very valuable to learn. Um, so uh, I'm sorry, at this point in the book, he's still an attorney. So it says, Charlie thought a lot about business during that time. He made a habit of asking people what the best business they knew of. He longed to join the rich elite clientele that his silk stocking law firm served. He decided, this is really important. He decided that each day he would devote one hour of time at the office to work on his own real estate projects. He wanted to develop real estate. And by doing so, he completed five, five projects. He said, uh, he has said that the first million dollars he put together was the hardest money he ever earned. It was also during that period that he realized he would never become rich or never become really rich practicing law. He'd have to find something else. So uh, I, I think that's obviously really important. Like, listen, there's nothing wrong with having a normal job. It's just you're not going to become wealthy being an employee. Um, I mean, go look at how the, the great thing um, that I'm 
that I was exposed to by accident, which which is a really good idea, was you can pull IRS data. And let's say you want to know, okay, what are the people that make over, say, $10 million a year? Uh, what is, like, what are the, what's their occupation? And so uh, a lot of it comes from, like, financial services. So uh, if you're making $10 million, $10 million plus a year, and this data is, like, you know, a couple years old. It might be might even be a decade old. But at the time, it was, like, 45% of the people were reporting $10 million a year income. It comes from, like, uh, interest, dividends, uh, capital gains, stuff like that. The next category is, like, business income. So entrepreneurs are something like 30%. Um, and then, you know, uh, goes from there. But I think that, um, so that's one way to do it. Charlie just realized, hey, like, uh, I want to be on the other side of this transaction. I want to be the people hiring the attorney, not the one actually doing the work. So he drops out and uh, goes, uh, leaves California. Um, actually, I don't know if he leaves permanently. I think he's just back in Omaha. But he winds up meeting Warren Buffett. He meets Warren at a lunch through mutual friends. And they instantly hit it off. Like the first time they talked. They wind up talking for hours. The, the rest of their friends leave lunch, and they just wind up uh, building like, this relationship they still have today. So it says, after Charlie returned to California, he and Warren talked several times a week on the phone over the next couple of years. And in 1962, Charlie finally started an investment partnership with an old poker buddy who was also a trader at the Pacific Coast Stock Exchange. He also started a new law firm, so he starts his own law firm called Mungle, Munger, Tolls, Hills, and Woods. And within three years, he stopped practicing law to focus on investing full-time. So he goes through a couple of these investment uh, partnerships. I think he even has what I guess you would call hedge fund at the time. Uh, f- winds up closing down um, after this uh, the the the, st- uh, the financial panic. I think of 1973 to 1974, if I'm not mistaken. And in 1979, Charlie became Berkshire Hathaway's first vice chairman. It was from those two positions. So he was. Uh, oh, I skipped something. Charlie wound up buying a company called Blue Chip Stamp. And then that merged with Berkshire Hathaway, but he was running the company. So it, says that's, uh, it was from those two positions that Charlie would help Warren make the investment and management decisions that would take Berkshire Hathaway from a net income of $148 million and a stock price of uh, $1,200 a share in 1984 to, a pro- to an income of approximately $24 billion and a stock price of $210,000 a share in 2016. Uh, Warren, in summing up Charlie's impact on his investment style over the last 57 years, said, Charlie shoved me in the direction of not, this is important, this is what uh, Warren was referencing at the beginning of the podcast about how uh, he credits Charlie with being like the architect behind the strategy of Berkshire. So it says, Charlie shoved me in the direction of not just buying bargains, as Ben Graham had taught me. This was the real impact that he had on me. It took a powerful force to move, to move me on from Graham's limiting view. It was the power of Charlie's mind. And that mind is what I was referencing earlier, where people that I um, admire their mind tend to admire Charlie Munger's mind. All right, so now we're into the book where it's going to move a lot faster because he gets to his points really, really quickly. So we start off, um, you know, Charlie Munger is very against this idea of, of fast money. He doesn't believe in it. And his quote is, the desire to get rich fast is pretty dangerous. And now we're going to hear... the the author expound david clark expound on that he says trying to get rich fast is dangerous because we have to gamble on the short-term price direction of some stock or other asset there are a huge number of people trying to do the same thing many of whom are much better informed than we are the short-term price direction of any security or derivative is subject to all kinds of wild price rings due to events that have nothing to do with the actual long-term value of the underlying business last but not least there is the problem of leverage to get rich quick one often has to use leverage or debt to amplify, amplify small price swings into a really huge gain. That's fine, but if things go against us, they can also turn into really large losses. 
In his early days, Charlie did use a lot of leverage on, the star, on his stock arbitrage investments. But as he got older, he saw the grave danger he was putting himself in and now passionately avoids using debt and only bets on the long-term economics of a business, not the short-term price of its, not the short-term price swings of its stock price. Okay, so that was fast money. Um, he has this idea where he talks about a lot where you need to know your circle of competence. And so uh, this is a direct quote from Charlie. He says, knowing what you don't know is more useful than being brilliant. What Charlie is saying here is that we should, uh, we should become conscious of what, we do not, of what we don't know and use that knowledge to stay away from investing in businesses we don't understand. Another one of his famous axioms is avoid being an idiot. And this is, uh, I don't really need to expand, expound on this quote. It's pretty straightforward. People are trying to be smart. All I am trying to do is not be idiotic, but it's harder than most people think. Uh, another one of my, <laughs> my favorite quotes of his, he talks about uh, getting rich by sitting on your ass. So it says, sit on your ass investing. You're paying less to brokers. You're listening to less nonsense. And if it works, the tax system gives you an extra one, two, or three percentage points per annual. Um, so he talks about, you know, you should be buying and then never selling. Like, he's not really into the, this idea of day, day trading. Um, the note I left myself is the same applies to founding and running your business. Start something to sell. Uh, in the entrepreneurship world, starting something to sell fast is glorified. But the type of person who is able to build a business and sell it is probably not going to be content sitting on their ass with just money to show for it. They inevitably start again, and most times they sold the best idea. So now... Uh, they are working on their second or third best idea. So he's talking about, uh, Charlie's saying, hey, you know, do your homework, read, research. Then once you make your purchase decision, like, that's it. You're done. Don't do anything else. Now work on the next purchase decision. Don't go and be all frantic and, and live like this, this like hectic lifestyle where it's like, okay, now it's up. Now I'm going to cash in on it. Um, and I've always referenced this multiple times on the podcast. Go look at the, there's graphs. Just type in Warren Buffett's net worth and you're going to see. I don't know what the percentage is. Let's say 50% of it's happened in the last like five years because all good things in life are from compounding and you can't have things that compound if you don't invest the time. Um, so it says the important investment philosophy assumes that one is better off buying a business with, exce- uh, one is off better buying a business with exceptional business economics working in its favor and holding it for many years than engaging in a lot of buying and selling. Now, uh, for our purposes, and uh, let's change engaging a lot of buying and selling to uh, engaging in a lot of starting and selling, starting and selling, so on and so forth. Um, I love Jason Fried's opinion on this. He's like, I'm a proud non-serial entrepreneur. He's like, I got a good idea and I'm going to stick with it. Um, trying to anticipate market trends, constantly buying and selling means constantly being taxed. So that's what uh, Charlie was talking about. You have a, a huge economic advantage over the people that do this. If one holds an investment for 20 years, there's only one tax to pay, which according to Charlie equates to an extra one to three per- extra percentage points of profit per year over the entire time you hold it. Charlie knows that time is a good friend to a business that has exceptional economics working in its favor, but for a mediocre business, time can be a curse. That's a really good point. Uh, there's a short little video. It's taken from one of the um, Berkshire Hathaway um, shareholder meetings, and it's just Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett talk about diversification because, you know, if you went to any kind of business school or from finance school, like they teach you to diversify, diversify, diversify. Uh, Charlie calls diversification twaddle. And um, he says, this worshiping at the altar of diversification, I think that's really crazy. 
So he talks about his diversification only is only for people that don't know how to value businesses. But he, uh, in, in that talk, he's like, listen, the idea where they, um, like, first of all, he says, there's only so many businesses that one human being can actually understand at like a fundamental level. Right. And so this idea where you've identified one, two or three really great businesses, but in the name of diverse, for the sake of diversification, you're going to, instead of putting more money into the things that you're, you think are sure winners, you're going to put into like the 35th best business. He's like, this is stupid. Like the people teaching you, and he 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 talked about this in the book somewhat. He's just, he has no respect for uh, like for almost all of modern financial education, and I use education loosely because it's mostly bullshit. Okay, um, Charlie discovered that if we invest in companies that have great economics working in their favor at a reasonable price, we can bring the number of companies we still own we own down to ten or fewer, and still be protected against an unexpected business failure, and have good growth on our portfolio over a ten to twenty year period. As the saying goes, too much diversification and we end up with a zoo. It is much easier to keep a sharp eye on our basket if there are only 10 eggs in it. And now, you know, if you listen to the three-part series I just did on Andrew Carnegie and Henry Frick, this comes up over and over again. Um, he's just, what Charlie and Warren are saying, let's say in the 1980s, 1990s, 2000s, Andrew Carnegie said 150 years before that. Um, he said, you know, it, this idea that you should put all your eggs in one basket and watch that basket. That's probably Andrew Carnegie's most famous quote. And then he, Andrew says in his autobiography, or maybe it was in one of the books with Frick, but he's like, listen, study how the great fortunes are made. It's not a scattershot approach. They've identified the best business possible and they put all their energy and effort into it. That's certainly what uh, Andrew Carnegie did. Um, it's another example of Charlie's going to talk about this a lot about when do you bet heavily. You should remember that good ideas are rare. When the odds are greatly in your favor, bet heavily. Same thing applies to business. If you've identified a, a business that's worth something, that there's clear demand, people are willing to pay you for it, you're, you enjoy running it, like why are you going out and starting a side project? The, very few people in the world in, in history, or even if you want to limit it to the people who are alive today, find one great business. That is so rare. You found one great business, you already won. Just stick with it. But again, that kind of goes against uh, human nature, which... Charlie talks about a lot. The reason that him and Warren are successful is because they have patience. But why, you know, patience seems sim simple, right? Your, your parents taught you, hey, be patient. But that's not in our nature to be patient. That's why it's so heavy. It's not that the, these ideas are even um, like, uh, like rare or unknown. It's the application of the idea that's so rare. Um, he's going to talk about more about financial crisis equals opportunity. And he says, if you, like me, lived through 1973 to 74 or even the early 1990s, there was a waiting list to get out of the country club. That's when you know things are tough. If you live long enough, you'll see it. So uh, at the same time I was reading that part, I was listening to Bill Gurley, another, another person that I respect the way he thinks. He just has a really interesting and unique mind. And I was taking notes on him. And uh, he was asked, like, how has experiencing multiple booms and busts impacted your investing mentality? And he talks about, um, I've read, I have multiple views on the subject. He says, I've read every book on the history of financial markets that I could. You can get a ton of exposure to it if you just look for it. Silicon Valley is an interesting place because I've never been around a group of people where risk is forgotten so quickly. And I think having that historical background is a huge advantage. And I think what Bill, Bill, Bill talks about this multiple times. Like, if you're really interested in something, there's no reason. Like, you have no excuse in the age of the internet not to be well-read on it. And I think if you're looking for other books or other... Uh, things like to, I, I, just like I think obviously uh, reading biographies is a good use of time. I think studying the history of financial markets is a really good use of time because it's it influences business and entrepreneurship, um, and that's 
basically what Charlie's telling us. He's like, listen, you're gonna, if you live long enough, you'll see this over and over and over again. Thanks for making it to the end of this preview. If you want to continue listening to the full episode, you'll need to upgrade to the Misfit feed. By upgrading, you'll get access to every full episode that I've ever done. These episodes are available nowhere else. And as a bonus, you also get lifetime access to my notebook that contains key insights from over 285 podcasts and lectures on entrepreneurship. As a way to illustrate why it is so important for you to learn the lessons from all the biographies that I analyze on the Misfit feed, I have some quotes that I've collected from other people who have discovered the value in reading biographies, and they explain to you and I why this activity is so valuable. So the first quote comes from the founder of Shopify, Toby Luke and he says, books are the closest you will ever come to finding cheat codes for real life. You can access the entire learnings of someone else's career in a few hours. This quote from Mark Andreessen on why he reads biographies. There are thousands of years in history in which lots and lots of very smart people worked very hard and ran all types of experiments on how to create new businesses and invent new technology. They ran these experiments throughout their entire lives. At some point, somebody put these ideas down in a book. For very little money and a few hours of time, you can learn from someone's accumulated experience. There is so much more to learn from the past than we often realize. You could productively spend your time reading experiences of great people who have come before you and learn every time. And finally, this quote from the book, The Tao of Charlie Munger, on why Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett have both read hundreds of biographies in their lifetime. Reading personal biographies allows ones to experience multiple lives and successes and failures. Reading business biographies allows one to experience the vicissitudes of a business and learn how problems were solved. Both Charlie and Warren are copious readers of personal and business biographies. So upgrade now by tapping the link that's in your show notes on your podcast player or going to founderspodcast.com.